0: During the onslaught of COVID-19, no place felt safe. But this risk was especially pervasive in detention centers where people in close proximity had nowhere to go. While the actions of some brave lawyers and judges were effective, many prisoners remained confined in poor conditions due to the bureaucratic and judicial barriers to their release. This is the story of how, as the world stopped, the judicial system failed to protect those behind bars. Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we'll be discussing Viral Injustice, piece by Brandon Garrett and Lee Kowarski, published in Issue 1 of Volume 110 in February of 2022. Brandon L. Garrett is the L. Neil Williams, Jr. Professor of Law and the Director of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at the Duke University School of Law. Lee Kowarski is the Bryant Smith Chair In law and co director of the Capital Punishment Center at the University of Texas School of Law. Brandon and Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about this important and timely piece.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Um, So, Professor Garrett, to set the stage, could you tell us a bit about uh, the background about why the incarcerated population in our country was and remains so vulnerable to COVID 19 um, and what happened and continues to happen in detention facilities as a result of the pandemic?
1: Sure. I mean, it's, you know, we're almost two years into the pandemic now, it's a little hard to even remember what it was like in those first few weeks of the pandemic. But if you remember those first you know, maps showing where the viral outbreaks were, now we're you know into variants, but the early versions of the virus were exploding at a time when there weren't vaccines, when we didn't know how to protect ourselves. And we didn't know d- how just how deadly it was going to be or how quickly it was going to spread. Uh, one thing that we did know early on was that it's in confined settings. And the CDC issued warnings fairly early on saying that, you know, it's the the most confined settings that are going to place people at the greatest risk. And uh, that was one of the reasons why, you know, life shut down pretty early on in the pandemic and people were doing things remotely and on uh, conferencing and audio software like we're on right now. People in custody obviously didn't have that luxury, and the CDC said early on, this, these are people who are in, in terrible risk because they can't socially distance uh, confined places there are often no ability to be, you know, six to 10 feet apart from anyone else, whether it's when you're sleeping or in the bathroom or in cells or in sort of the kind of group spaces they have in jails and other detention centers. We also knew like, right away that enormous numbers of people held in detention, and we talk about all different types of detention facilities in this article, whether it's prisons or jails, um, are people who are, have all sorts of medical vulnerabilities, also behavioral health needs. And you know when you have people who are suffering from other types of medical crises, they may be vulnerable to the virus. It also may be difficult to, to do the kind of public health things that you otherwise want to do the public health challenges are different depending on what type of detention you're talking about. People held in our prisons, you know, our prisons are increasingly geriatric facilities. You have people who are really elderly, uh, who are serving very long sentences and are acutely vulnerable to all sorts of different medical conditions who also already have severe medical needs and were very vulnerable to the virus. Uh, In jails, you also have many people turning over in jails. And so, there's a separate public health concern that huge numbers of people cycle in and out of jails. And so we knew that jails were going to be super spreader locations. Uh, there was a lot of attempt early on to cruise ships or people who had a big backyard inadvisable party. Well, our jails were super spreading every day and very little was being done about it. And so it, it very quickly became a concern for uh, civil rights and sort of prison lawyers Uh, Jail conditions, lawyers, what are we going to do as lawyers about this emerging crisis? Public health professionals were involved. There have since been really important studies documenting what happened from a public health perspective. As lawyers, we were particularly interested in what what would lawyers do and what would the courts do uh, sort of in real time as this crisis
0: unfolded. Um, Can we all address this question to you and it off what, what Brandon just said? Your piece does a great job of laying out the complexities of the different kinds of detention in the United States, as well as the different legal avenues available to incarcerated individuals seeking relief from dangerous detention conditions. It's undoubtedly complex, but could you tell us a bit about these different forms of detention and the relief available to individuals subject to each form?
2: Sure. Uh, As Brandon mentioned, when we say detainee, that's not really a scientific classification. It basically refers to anybody who's in state custody. You can be in state custody for different reasons. Um, You can be uh, in state custody because you've been convicted of a crime. You can be in state custody because you're in pretrial detention, which means they're holding you before the trial takes place. Or you can be in custody uh, for some other reason, the most prominent of which, uh, at least for the article, is because you're being detained pending some immigration proceeding. So those, those are the big ones for the purposes of our analysis. There's other detention categories and there's some differences across the populations, um, in those different forms of custody. The vulnerabilities can be a little bit different, both because the populations going in are a little different. And also because the attributes of the stays at the facilities are a little bit different. Um, So, there are different ways to challenge your detention based on some sort of public health crisis, depending on what kind of detention that you're in. And the restrictions on your ability to challenge also sort of depend on what kind of detention you're in. Uh, So, you know, what sorts of things did people try to do when they're in detention? Well, there's two big categories. Um... The first big category is they tried to get out and they used what is uh, known as a uh, writ of habeas corpus to try to do that. All that means is that you have a right to appear before a judge and tell the judge that the custody of the state is exercising over you is unlawful.
1: For people who aren't used to habeas and these kind of rules, like you might have, you might think that there should just be some way to say get out of jail because my health is at risk. That that doesn't exist. Like people are normally held in jail facing trial. They haven't been convicted of anything yet, but they're being held on often a secured bond or a cash bond based on a perception of like are they a flight risk? Are they at a risk of committing another crime? But like health isn't a factor there. You know if you're going to have a very high risk pregnancy, maybe that's something the judge could informally take into account. But it's not actually like in the law. If you're in severe mental health crisis, you need medication. Like let me out so I can be in a hospital to get medicated. Maybe there's a procedure for the jail to sort of send you over to the hospital, but there, it's not like because of my health is at risk, because I could die, I can I can be released to attend to my medical needs. That's just never, in almost no state, is there any way to actually take public health into account when you're deciding whether to hold someone in detention. And that's, of course, it's even harder if you've been convicted of a crime, because then, well, you're in prison and you've lost your freedom. But, um, but we're also, like Lee was saying, we're talking about some people who are, being detained, who haven't been convicted of anything, they aren't like fully in criminal custody of the state. They haven't lost their freedom; they're presumed innocent until proven guilty. And yet, it's still really, really hard for um, judges to to modify their conditions. Say, no, 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 you can you can be in the community.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, it, like as Brandon mentioned, you know, there's statutes here and there uh, that might allude to prisoner health as like a consideration you can kind of take in tangentially. But by and large, um, the pre-existing devices for courts to use to discharge prisoners were pretty useless in the face of like a catastrophic health threat like this one. Uh, And then for lots of technical reasons that you you don't have to worry about, the the habeas corpus uh, remedy was also not that helpful um because you had you know you have people showing up and basically arguing that the threat to their health amounted to a constitutional violation and on the basis of that constitutional violation they should be discharged and the courts generally rejected those but that that's the first category of challenge let me go the second category is fix the prison um in other words the the request isn't for discharge, but it's a modification of the conditions under which the people are incarcerated. Uh, You know, those requests can be made under a bunch of different statutes. For example, the Americans with Disability Act, it was through that device that a lot of times prisoners would ask for things like, you know, actually paying to keep the ventilation on or, Um, you know, for an adequate supply of masks or testing um, or adequate, you know, some other uh, level of adequate medical supplies or or something like that. But those are the two big categories. Let me out and, you know, fix the conditions so that they're helpful. And the precise way those work depended on a little bit on like what kind of custody you're in
0: with both of these uh, types of requests for relief. What was, uh, what was the general response from, the, from judges and uh, was this response effective in safeguarding incarcerated populations?
1: So some judges went with, uh, well, well, they should be doing everything they can given their physical layout and the challenges in accomplishing distancing. It, courts would then sometimes say, well, you need to like make the hand sanitizer available. You need to have masks. You need to make all that available. Often there was not even minimal compliance. Some courts appointed masters to oversee compliance, and even they said it's not really, not really happening. So those the prison conditions remedies, you know, were imposed by, by a number of lower courts around the country, uh, and they faced real difficulties uh, in general in getting enforcement. but, but sometimes that worked. There were a, you know a second set of approaches, which is like to well to order releases. What some judges did was a form of triage, and they said, well, you know, if there are really medically vulnerable people who don't pose much of a public safety risk, get them out now. Very few courts did that. Some did, though. Actually, here in North Carolina, a state lawsuit eventually led to the a very large-scale release of many thousands of prisoners, but it took, you know, more than a year for that to happen. By that time, the virus had spread all throughout detention facilities, But but, you know, many thousands of people were eventually released. Often, though, when judges ordered those releases at anything more than a sort of a case-by-case type scale, uh, appellate courts raised questions, sent things back. And what we saw was the U.S. Supreme Court get involved in some of the higher-profile cases and say, not so fast, this injunction doesn't seem supported. So just today, the Supreme Court held arguments uh, in a challenge to the Biden administration's workplace uh, vaccine requirement. I mean, it's, it, the irony was not lost on us that the Supreme Court also got involved very quickly through this sort of shadow docket uh, rulings that didn't go through the regular argument schedule. The Supreme Court very quickly got involved in the highest profile cases in which lower federal courts ordered remedies to protect the constitutional rights of uh, people held in jail detention. And they sided with, you know, with the, the jailers and said, oh, defer to them on public health even though the, these were serious constitutional violations that the trial judges had found saying that like, we need preliminary relief. We need emergency relief. This is an emergency. These conditions need to be improved and we need to reduce overcrowding so that these places don't become viral epicenters. And uh, so the, a strong message was sent from the top in the federal courts, like basically judges, if you stick your neck out and, and impose more searching remedies, the Supreme court will, will, will slap it down. Uh, which was quite inconsistent with their approach in trying to protect constitutional rights of religious congregations, for example, that wanted to violate health protective orders.
0: So it sounds like judicial remedies were limited. Besides the appellate and Supreme Court reversals, what other barriers did prisoners face in securing release from detention?
1: Uh, one of the reasons why we wanted to tell this story of how like, some brave judges tried to do something about this. Everyone saw it happening. Lawyers saw it happening. They filed these complaints all around the country. They were working with each other. You could tell, like, all these complaints look like each other. Like, lawyers were sharing their drafts with each other. Uh, lawsuits filed against local jails, immigration facilities, federal centers, all across the country. You saw judges saying, like, this is coming. Huge numbers of people are going to get the virus in this detention facility. And I can't do anything about it. Or I will do something about it prison, sheriff, you know, jail. Tell me, like, what do you have soap? Are you separating people? No? Well, then what are you going to do about it? Come up with your plan. And one after another, even the judges that did decide to actually try to do something were shut down on appeal or eventually shut down by the, the Supreme Court. Congress stepped in pretty quickly in the CARES Act, providing lots of different types of relief and efforts to try to do things about the the COVID-19 pandemic. But one of the many pieces of the CARES Act called on compassionate release of federal prisoners, you know, and... Uh, Called for it to happen at scale, building on existing home confinement, compassionate release authority, and actually the Attorney General at the time, Bill Barr, said like, "Yes, we must do this. Find older people, people with pre-existing medical conditions. Get these thousands of people out." There are three uh, uh, federal detention centers in particular that were singled out, saying like, "You need to start discharging people. Do it now." And yet, the Bureau of Prisons there, like the internal bureaucracy, like was able to process like handfuls. Of of releases to home confinement, federal judges got involved. There was litigation. They described the process as Kafkaesque. These they're just not processing applications out of the fifty five thousand applications they pro- processed. You know, dozens. And part of the issue is, and it was the same in local jails, whether it's big federal prisons or local jails or state prisons. Or they're like, sounds like there just like weren't people who are used to having the job of reviewing. Release applications. There was just no system to release people. Even if you had an order from the Attorney General, you have federal legislation. Uh, you have federal judges breathing down your neck, saying, "What are you doing? These people are at risk of death." Like you've looked at how many applications—a few dozen. How about the other, like fifty-four thousand? Just there's no one whose job it is to to get people out. Our system is 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 like it's one way. You get in, you don't get released until your sentence is out is done. There's no way to release people at scale before their sentence is done. Uh, Even locally here in Durham, you know, our local district attorney joined in motions to release a couple of dozen medically vulnerable people. Uh, It took a long time to process those releases because there's just no there's no procedure for that. Um, And that was that was part of the story, too. Like, even if you had good federal law, good guidance from the attorney general on high, still nothing was happening. And lawyers were filing lawsuits right and left and meeting meeting a brick wall. That That's how hard it was, even when you had law on your side to accomplish these releases. And so what happened is you had massive spread of the virus tearing through jails, prisons, and, and surrounding communities. You know, the research has been building that jails, for example, have been epicenters for just the spread of the virus in general in our society, because so many people come in and out of out of our jails. Houston Jail, like many others in the country, is continues to be full to the brim, uh, because of the one thing that the virus also shut down was trials. And so... It used to be that people were in jails for somewhat shorter stays because their cases would be plea bargained or their case would go to trial. Even felony cases, you know, you didn't have people languishing for years normally pre-trial. But not only have have there been an increase in shootings and some some serious offenses, others have declined. Uh, But we have the courts shut down, and so you know, it's it's hard to. Um, move cases along when there's there's no shadow of a trial. Very few trials are happening. They've picked up again somewhat. Uh, hearings can be virtual, but eventually like you need to reach a judgment in a criminal case. And and for over a year, that wasn't really happening. And so you had people actually accumulating at a time when having overpopulated jails was a serious public health danger.
0: So it sounds like the failure of our our system to protect Folks who were incarcerated was, was both judicial and bureaucratic. But one thing that interested me about your piece was this idea of detention exceptionalism that seemed to be a key motivating factor um, in this failure to respond. And so, Lee, I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that concept and, and what it might tell us about public perception of deta- detained individuals.
2: Yeah. I mean, there is... Um, I mean, That terminology is meant just to refer to an idea that is pretty familiar um, to a lot of people, especially people who work in the criminal justice space. And that is um, just that we tend to place less value on um, human life and suffering of uh, people in detention. Um, And so... When we talk about the public health risk, people wouldn't even realize that what they were saying was they were excluding the imprisoned population from the calculation of what was dangerous to public health. So we would say, "Oh, you know, just throwing them all inside is better for public health," ignoring the fact that I mean, these people haven't lost rights to health protective incarceration just because they're in jail doesn't mean that um, you know we don't treat them as part of the community. Um, And so, uh, you know, this is part of a long tradition in which we second class the health and uh, rights of our prisoner population. So I think it's actually quite unsurprising uh, that a lot of this happened. I mean, Brandon alluded to this before, but you know, the decisional law, especially in uh, the religious uh, gathering cases is Replete with these really hoary declarations about how, you know, the Constitution doesn't go dormant in periods of emergency and stuff like that. And I mean, sure, but what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. And it certainly seems that um, the the courts are singing a very different tune when it comes to the constitutional rights of our prisoner populations. Um, and that's just like a really unfortunate way for us to think about prisoners because, uh, you know, we've been so engorged on incarceration uh, as a strategy for dealing with all sorts of social problems for so long. Um, And also, you know, the structural disadvantages that that addiction to incarceration entails means that the public health consequences uh, have disparate uh, social and racial impacts. Um, And then the other piece is that, you know, uh, this detention exceptionalism idea um, is... It is this premise that people have that people in detention are exceptionally dangerous um, now you know sure we're all familiar with you know front page stories about how you know so-and-so was released on bail and committed such and such a violent crime and like those things are going to happen um you know and if, if the strategy was to zero those things out then we wouldn't let anybody out of jail ever but that's obviously an untenable solution As well, and the reality is that although there are certainly um, these moments of violence uh, that end up on the front page, that the actual incidents of uh, criminal offending uh, in uh, a pretrial posture or what we call recidivism—that is, criminality after a conviction—is much, 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 much lower than uh, the public imagines. Uh, And so the result is we're way too afraid um, of crime or violence associated with letting people out when we're trying to go through the deliberative process of evaluating costs versus benefits. So, you know, when we talk about detention exceptionalism, we're combining those two ideas, right? First, the idea that, you know, we just don't value the lives and suffering of prisoners in America the right way. And secondly, we have an inflated perception of risk. And those two things, I think, account for a lot of the willingness um, to bracket prisoner rights and treat them in a way that differs rather dramatically from the way we treat rights in other contexts.
0: And then just so we have it, maybe you could, uh, either of you could just Discuss a little bit in detail the the comparison between um, I believe it was the Roman Catholic Diocese case and and Alman. Um, just I know you both touched on that that comparison, but if there's a, if there's a chance to kind of drill down on that, that would be wonderful.
1: Quickly, the Almond case. So that came out of the Orange County Jail, um, and, and so basically, I mean, civil rights lawyers brought lawsuits all around the country within weeks of the pandemic, because they knew that huge numbers of people were, were going to die. Um, and I mean, to make starker the, the, the exceptionalism point that Willie was just making, I mean, do, do people really think that if you're arrested for not appearing in court for traffic tickets or for loitering or for a minor drug possession charge, that that should be a death sentence, that you should be taken someplace where you'll be left to die? Uh, no one thinks that we reserve death sentences for very serious cases. Um, but, you know, what What civil so rights lawyers brought home starkly was that these are people who are predictably going to die. We don't know which of them will be vulnerable to the virus. We don't know enough about the virus, but they're being held in a deadly place. Uh, even if you, they're just focusing on the, the most medically vulnerable, these are people who are um, in some detention settings haven't even been convicted of a crime. And are are facing death. In other situations, these are people who are eligible for, for parole. Maybe haven't gotten it yet. These are people who have already served many years in prison. How about the long-serving prisoners? Uh, should they? Death is not part of their sentence either. Um, and uh, and normally under the Eighth Amendment, if you knew that someone was facing a deadly risk in custody, that's something that you have to take care of right away. Uh, instead, courts sort of said, oh, well, this is very hard. You know, it's an emergency, uh, not, not predictable. But, of course, this what happened was predictable. Lawyers predicted it. They filed complaints all around the country saying there's going to be massive spread of this virus unless someone does something, do something. Uh, one of the judges that, that said, oh, well, we better do something uh, was in this Orange County case. Uh, and uh, in the Ullman case, there was detailed uh, fact-finding describing how little was being done, uh, to protect the, the prisoners, uh, sorry, the, 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 jail inmates. Um, the, uh, uh, injunction was only about change conditions that they wanted the, the, um, you know, just basic stuff to be in place. Like don't confine us right next to each other, spread us apart. Um, Justice Sotomayor described how in the district court, like, you know, inmates were being put in bunk beds that are two or three feet apart. They were packed into day rooms uh, like sardines lined up next to each other to wait for the phone. Uh, beds are right next to each other uh, that there were just nothing being done to, to keep people apart, That they were being packed like sardines. We're all going to get COVID unless you do something about it. Uh, there Um, there had already been hundreds of cases. There are 3000 people in this, in this jail. And, uh, um, the, the, the trial judge said, okay, something needs to be done right away. Otherwise this is going to just spread like wildfire throughout the entire facility. Um, and you know, the Supreme court says, oh no, no, no. The insufficient deference to the prison authorities that, um, that, you know, there's the special expertise and responsibility of of, of the authorities in this situation. So that, that's really different than what the court said um, in the religion cases, where uh, they, they sort of said, oh, no, no, the special expertise of the public health authorities doesn't matter. We don't care about the special expertise of public health authorities. If religious groups want to be able to... Uh, Meet in person in confined settings. Uh, they they shouldn't. There should be exceptions. Uh, there should be exceptions in general orders uh, that are requiring social distancing and, and public gatherings. Uh, and 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 there need to be those exceptions because constitutional rights aren't disabled just because there's a pandemic. Uh, and uh, and so uh, religious association is important. Uh, public health has to sort of create exceptions for that. Well, again, in, in, in cases involving people in detention, their constitutional rights, their Eighth Amendment rights to not be treated to, to cruel and unusual conditions, to not have their health treated with deliberate indifference, aligned with public safety. Their rights were being endangered and public health judgments um, uh, re- required immediate action. And, and yet the court stepped in when it certainly didn't need to. These are preliminary injunctions. Uh, the Supreme Court is not in a position to do fact-finding, but the justices stepped in to do fact-finding and second-guessed orders that were detailed and after hearings and the like uh, in these, you know, shadow docket rulings, not based on regular regular briefing. So it was really unusual for the Supreme Court to get so involved in fact-intensive decisions by the lower federal courts during a rapidly evolving emergency. And it's, it's it, you know, it highlighted really the The priorities of the justices, that religious association rights of deep concern, we need to step in and allow people to to enjoy certain freedoms. Uh, But uh, jail inmates whose lives are in danger, no, 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 that there should be no remedies coming from the courts.
0: Another aspect of this uh, approach to detainee litigation was what your paper identified as a recalibration of rights to remedies. Um, And so it might seem that the unprecedented nature of COVID and the unique Threat it poses to incarcerated populations would call for an expansion of rights and generous remedies, but that doesn't appear to be the case. So, Lee, I'm wondering if you could discuss how the courts calibrated rights and remedies in the context of COVID-19 detainee litigation.
2: Um, sure, uh, and just a little bit of background for folks who may not be familiar with the language of rights versus remedies. Rights are what we would think of as substantive law. You know, you have a right against a particular type of harsh treatment. Um, in this case, you have a right against um, you know some sort of unconstitutional condition of confinement. Um, and when we say remedy, we mean the degree to which we're gonna enforce that in a court. Um, you know in other words, we have some rights that are either just aspirational, they're not judicially enforced um, or they're not enforced anywhere or they're you know simply enforced by uh, other officials besides judges. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of literature, um, over a very long period of time, sort of looking at like what happens when you expand the substance scope of a right. When you say, you know, your right protects you against, uh, you know, more stuff, uh, than it did previously, then what happens to the remedy? Um, and because the logical result with no adjustment and remedy is that, a lot more people get to vindicate their rights in court. Um, well, sometimes those two things have an inverse relationship. In other words, in order to maintain something approaching um, a constant rate of judicial relief, what happens if all of a sudden you know there's a bunch of constitutional violations happening? Courts will restrict the remedy, um, and that way they avoid a situation where because of this dramatic um, sudden explosion and constitutional violations. There's this corresponding explosion in relief in the form of discharge of, um, you know, sort of disruptive orders to, uh, you know, reform prison conditions. Uh, And you sort of saw that happen in real time, right, where you see courts not necessarily willing to say that there weren't constitutional violations, but you saw them leaning heavily on the idea that remedies for those constitutional violations were limited and the court's hands were tied um, because goodness knows we can't order discharge. Um, and, you know, those that remedial constriction took lots and lots of different forms. Um, you know, there were these requirements that, well, we can't grant relief because the prisoner didn't exhaust remedies. That, that means like they didn't use the prison grievance process. You know, they send the warden a letter saying like, you know, hey, can you, you know, clean, clean the black mold off of my, of my wall? And then the office sends it back and says, oh, we can't read your handwriting. And then you, you rewrite the letter or you type it. And then the office says, oh, you sent the letter too late. You know, and it drags on forever. So if you impose those sorts of exhaustion requirements, the right's basically meaningless because you don't get response in, on the time horizons that you need um, for it to be efficacious. Um, and that's just one example. Uh, but the broader point is because you had this dramatic explosion in what the substantive right entailed, um, what you would see sometimes is a restriction in the remedy. That's not to suggest that the court didn't also restrict the right in certain places, because it did, right? It responded to the specter of enormous relief. Like, if you applied the incumbent rules about what was a a constitutional violation, and when you were supposed to get a discharge for it, there would have been discharge everywhere. So courts largely responded by either shrinking the right or the remedy.
0: So with the COVID-19 pandemic ongoing, and the fact that it appears likely that the global community will be dealing with similar pandemics in the future, I'm wondering, Brandon, about what your piece tells us about what needs to change about our institutions in order to respond to detainee claims for relief more justly in the future.
1: Yeah, so we, we certainly need to trust these problems to lawmakers and not just sort of expect that judges will step in and do the right thing during an emergency. Not everything w- was completely bleak, as we've been describing. You know, Law enforcement certainly exercised a lot of discretion and stopped arresting people for really low-level stuff, figuring like we don't need people in the jail for low-level things given the risk of epidemic spread. And so for some time, for at least a year or so, jail populations substantially declined. And many judges sort of informally considered public health when they were deciding whether to order that someone be held pretrial or not. We also learned that you don't need to bring people into courthouses for lots of hearings, court appearance, you know, for minor stuff. Often people, you know, show up in low level cases, low level felonies, misdemeanors. Many, many times when all that happens in court is the defense lawyer asks for some discovery, prosecutors say, well, we haven't gotten the body cam footage yet. The judge says, okay, come back in two months. We can learn from some of that, whether that will happen, uh, you know, it's, it's we're not super optimistic, but then again, some of these, you know, there are states that have now held millions of online hearings, virtual hearings, which have gone pretty well. Jails reduced the population by half in some places. Went pretty well. But that said, none of that is reflected in law. And so um, we need m- more clear legal provisions, well, like what was in the CARE Act, but not actually carried out, that actually provide public health authority. Uh, part of it is that we just balance risks terribly. Like, we're really worried we can hold someone in, in jail who hasn't been convicted of a crime because you're worried that they might not appear in court. You even had people in jail for court not appearance when the courts were closed during the pandemic. Like, somehow that matters as a social harm that someone might not appear in court for a hearing. Um, like, the chance that someone flees a jurisdiction is, is minuscule. Uh, that's typically really wealthy people who have means. But that's like a risk that around the country judges are allowed to pe- keep people in jail who are innocent until proven guilty because of risk of non-appearance in court. And yet you, 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 you can't release people uh, and presume that they should be released if they would face a grave public health threat uh, or, you know, whether it's a virus or a heart condition or AIDS or severe psychiatric disorders. And, uh, you know, I mean, the COVID has been a public health wake-up call uh, that has shaken lots of areas of law and policy in this country. It's been really, really hard to shake a lot of the
0: assumptions that have built mass incarceration in the United States. Thank you so much, both of you, for bringing attention to this topic and for speaking with us today. Well, We're definitely grateful
1: to California Law Review for publishing our piece and for the chance to work with with your editors. And uh, we're really, really excited to see this in in print uh, in just a few more weeks, maybe around the time that this podcast is available. Um, We're grateful to all of our colleagues that gave us feedback on on drafts. We're particularly grateful, you know, a number of the lawyers who who worked on these cases shared with us some of their litigation documents and described to us what was happening on on the ground as they were working through these cases. Um, There were also a lot of decisions all around the country. We had research assistants that had to read an awful, awful lot they sort of felt the urgency of this viral epidemic tearing through our prisons and jails. And I think they found the work really meaningful. So did we, uh, I'm not sure it was totally therapeutic to read about litigation as it was happening, which was all sort of mostly destined to, to fail. Uh, but, but we felt like we had to also kind of create a record of, of what had happened in the courts. Um, but we're also re- we're really grateful to students who did a lot of work digesting a lot of really complicated case law as well.
2: And, um, you know, I wear an academic hat. Um, and it's not really thanks. But, um, you know, I want to acknowledge at least the suffering of America's deeply population. Um, because uh, it's really a tragedy uh, and unnecessary. Um, and this was in many ways, a sad article to write. And, um, you know, I I think we both hope some good comes of it.
0: We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Brandon and Lee's article, you can find it in volume 110, issue one of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. If you are able to leave us a rating and a review, we would greatly appreciate it. See you in the next episode.